Ranieri and Co. I um, took Chris into custody and yeah, I took him down to Northcote Police Station and um, every badass copper in Melbourne came in to have a few whacks at him. Chris McDonald worked at Toy World, a Melbourne store selling the latest computer games, Barbies and Lego. He also dabbled in computer hacking in the 1980s. The biggest, meanest coppers in Melbourne called in to come and teach him a lesson, basically. Two coppers, you know, six foot eight, probably 150 kilos, coming through the door in pairs and um, they want to know which room he's in. One of six children, and according to his father, always the best behaved. Well, that's what he told the court. It was like his brain was wired to a computer. You know, he knew, he knew how they worked and, and he thought like that. It was extraordinary. Chris was spending a lot of time on his new computers, the ones he got from the toy store. You know, he'd spend 10 hours a night, basically all night, um, on a computer. Have his mates over and they'd, they'd sort of all just spend the night on a, the, the, the next best thing they could do on a computer. I guess that involved hacking and getting into systems. And now, the police want him for criminal activity. They've got to be mistaken. This was the first time Australian police had to deal with computer hacking. Chris had discovered how powerful these new home appliances could be, and he found they were capable of doing a lot more than it said in the easy-to-understand user manual. He just had this smirk about him, always just a sparkle in his eye like you knew there was a bit of mischief. I mean, he just obviously found something that he was right into and just like loved tiny rogueness that we were kind of behaving in. It was the start of a new era. The internet was soon to launch worldwide, access to information on an unprecedented scale. Hacking, hacktivism, crypto wars, cypherpunks, government secrets revealed. Massive whistleblowing, leaking and publishing of war crimes, they were all to come. This new machine gave extraordinary power to an individual, if he knew how. But it also gave governments and corporations unprecedented power of surveillance. In this moment, there was experimentation and a frontier and exploring and no boundaries and no sense of I can't do it. In the beginning, it was hard to see the difference between being curious and being criminal. I even developed my first malware virus in 1984, the math teacher who was our de facto computer teacher was impressed because he couldn't get rid of it. And essentially all I did was put some code into the clock chip of the computer. And all I did was manage to slow the computers down by a factor of 100. So to have this Apple to e-boot, it would take two hours. The hackers got smarter, more adventurous, and the police and governments tried to keep up. Everything was about to change. I'm Greg Muller. I've been a journalist for about 20 years. When I started looking into this story, I was amazed that one of the most interesting stories I'd ever investigated had been going on in my hometown of Melbourne. I grew up in the 80s and knew some kids who were into computers. I remember playing on a friend's Sega SC3000 and finding it really boring. I recall wondering why he wanted a modem so badly. What was that? And what did it do? I had no idea. No idea at all, as it turns out. Military systems, universities, telecommunications companies were being hacked from just a few suburbs away. Indeed, a bit further along my local train line was a guy, about my age, who was tapping away on a keyboard. He was learning, tinkering, exploring, 
and would go on to become one of the world's most notorious hackers. Assange first came to notice in Australia in 1995 when he was charged with 30 hacking offences. Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. This is Motherload, a Ranieri and Co podcast. This seven-part series will take you back to the extraordinary time of early computer hacking in the 80s and 90s and tell the story of how a group of teenagers took on the world from their bedrooms. They penetrated some of the biggest institutions on the planet, a story of innovation, fearlessness and epic trolls. Then we'll look at how this technology enabled a new type of politics and how governments around the world had much to fear. Loading episode one, Tiny Rogueness. This podcast was made in Melbourne, the second biggest city in Australia next to Sydney. Sydney has the glamorous harbour, the opera house and bridge and a larger share of tourists, the multi-millionaire harbourside mansions and the bright pastel-coloured Ken Doan t-shirts. Melburnians are more likely wearing a black waistcoat in the laneway pubs and getting around on Melbourne's famous W-class trams. Less glitzy, more arty. The Glasgow to Scotland's Edinburgh, the New York to America's LA, but on a much smaller scale. I've always said that in Australia, Sydney is the brain and Melbourne is the soul, and it's got passion. A city that was, in the 1980s and 90s, home to some of the best computer hackers in the world. Oh, top ten. I'd even say top five. No, I'll go as far as to say top three. It's here where hackers infiltrated the computer systems of NASA, US defence networks, international banks and research stations across the globe. Oh, it was definitely an epicentre. Melbourne was definitely an epicentre of, of hacking talent. And the birthplace of hacktivism, hacking with a political agenda. First of all, the Melbourne hackers were extremely skilled. There's no doubt about it. They were among the best in the world. And that was recognised by overseas hackers as well. It's also where a young Julian Assange cut his teeth on computers and where he first ran into the law. Assange had developed a program to collect passwords, meaning the whole computer opened up to him and he could walk around like God Almighty. He went to the dragon's cave while I was asleep very quickly and pissed in the corner and then left. The definitive book on the Melbourne underground computer scene was written by Melbourne journalist, now academic, Dr. Sulek Dreyfus, and a then geeky computer nerd called Julian Assange. I've lost count of the number of times in the last six months I've heard the words, have you spoken to Sulek Dreyfus? It took a while to organise an interview. Firstly, there was COVID and a serious lockdown. The unenviable title of the world's most lockdown city. When we finally scheduled a meeting, an earthquake shook Melbourne. A sit-down interview seemed downright dangerous. So we rescheduled. On that day, there was breaking news. 
the United States was hatching a plan at pretty high levels to either kidnap or possibly even kill Julian Assange. Sulet texted me, I think today is going to be not doable. I have to write to the White House. We consider pretty much any course of action to get rid of Julian Assange, including staged car accidents and even Bond movie-style street shootouts. With restrictions still preventing meeting indoors, we finally caught up in a local park. I've arranged to meet Sulet Dreyfus at Edinburgh Gardens in Fitzroy, the inner suburb of Melbourne. And I'm waiting in front of a, a circular garden bed with a huge concrete plinth in the middle, where once you might expect a statue, indeed once there was a statue of Queen Victoria on top of that, that went missing. Now there's a sculpture on top which looks like a gold puffy worm. Very quirky. Very Melbourne. Hey! Good to see you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Hey, I have a thermos and extra cup in my car. Do you want me to get tea for you? <laughs> I won't say no to that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we settled down on a park bench on a typical Melbourne day. It was cold, but when the sun broke through, it got warm, and there were threatening clouds on the horizon. There's a saying in this city, if you don't like the weather, just wait. My first question, why Melbourne? I think there's something about being the southernmost city of more than a million people in the world. There's an isolation factor. And that isolation factor um, is, is actually probably turned out to be a good thing because it's built both resilience and resourcefulness. Um, because you're a long way from anywhere in Australia, but particularly in, in Melbourne. But that resourcefulness was really important because it gave, I think, early people in the underground the chance and the confidence to just try stuff you know they didn't they didn't imagine barriers and then you had this kind of magic moment where the internet came to Australia and a kind of quiet subclass of boys they were mostly boys often from working class or lower middle class families who were curious and smart and willing to take a little corner of that pie when no one was looking off the, uh, the kitchen window ledge and try it out for themselves. Bill Apro was Australian Federal Police. He chased these hackers. We'll hear a lot more from him later in the series. Bill thinks he knows why, when it came to computers, Melbourne was where it was at. Oh, extremely easy answer. Monash University. We had extremely good lecturers. They saw the future. And it stands to reason, when you have good computer schools, you have good hackers. Well, hackers went to Monash. Hackers went to Monash, RMIT. We're talking, this is a hub in Australia where computer programming far outdid anywhere, anywhere else in Australia. I wanted to test this because everyone likes to think their hometown is the best. So I tracked down Professor John Rosenberg, on his kitchen bench was a machine that looked like it was from the original set of Star Trek. This, this is the front panel yeah. of the computer called the Hewlett Packard 2100A. Welcome to the Hewlett Packard 2100A computer from 1971. And it was the first major computer the computer science department at Monash had. Uh, and I did my PhD using this computer, in fact. Um, and when they decommissioned it, I grabbed the front panel. I really liked all the buttons and the lights. John was a senior lecturer in computers at Monash University in the early 1980s and later dean of the faculty. He still lives in Melbourne. So if I press this one... The teddy bear's picnic. 
was one of the tunes he used to play. Uh, and then I added this in for the grandchildren. Whoa, that just crashed. <laughs> anyway. Well, I'm John Rosenberg. Uh, I had a career of 38 years in higher education, beginning as a computer science academic and a professor of computer science. Monash had the first faculty of computer science in Australia, indeed in the Southern Hemisphere. And this put Melbourne way out in front when it came to teaching computers. And they don't teach computers now like they used to. In those earlier days, the 70s and 80s, students learnt everything about a computer, from the digital hardware through to how you write the operating system, how you build the compilers that convert the programming languages, right through to writing applications. These days, there's so much software below, most students are learning at the application level only. So I think this depth of education they got meant, whether rightly or wrongly, they fully understood exactly what was going on inside that computer and could exploit that. Melbourne became a bit of a hub. I do believe that, and, and, and that may be why people were, were clustered around Melbourne, people who became uh, involved in the hacking in, uh, environment, etc. Indeed, when the internet did come to Australia on June 23, 1989, the first connection was made to Melbourne, and from here to the rest of the country. Plus, you had the infrastructure of these universities and TAFEs that brought the early internet with them. Uh, and the early internet presence was actually based here in Melbourne for Australia, historically. So you had the education institutions, the universities and TAFEs Sulet mentioned, and the culture of do-it-yourself. Now, just add curious kids. Jeff Houston was teaching some of them at the time. And in some ways it was just like many of these hackers, a kid just exploring the boundaries. But unfortunately he was also a really clever kid. And so his boundaries were much further afield than the rest of us. <laughs> For a set of gifted kids from often sort of working class, middle class backgrounds who were weird in their classroom, weird in their school and their suburbs, who didn't fit in because they were super gifted. Um, and suddenly they found this community of like-minded people um, who were curious like themselves, who didn't sleep like themselves, um, and who just wanted to continue exploring. And you had this access to information that they had never had before. <laughs> I'd like to be introduced. Um, I guess, uh, so I'm Steve Stevens, and presently... One of those early hackers was Steve Stevens, and one of his first hacks came from just that, curiosity. Our greatest hacks were at Monash Uni in the early days, and we used to go and log into the workstations, and then we used to put up a fake login window, and that's how we actually got control of the whole uni. It was just kind of absolutely hysterical. The network administrators would wander in, they'd type in their master super-duper passwords, and it would just go, incorrect password, and put the login screen back. The problem is, in the background, it sent the username and password to us, and then exited, showing them the real login screen. So they'd go, oh, oh, and the login. Probably, I think it was about three days, we actually got 90% of all the senior administrative staff of Monash Uni, all their credentials. And we started to poke around and realised it's a big business with lots of data that we could give a shit about. <laughs> we defeated them, so there wasn't much point. We weren't there trying to exploit their assets or anything particular. So, how did it start? Well, innocently enough, teenage boys bored with life in the outer suburbs exploring a new technology. 
Take Andrew Sidwell. Since 15 years of age, I've been known as Bag. He was known online as Optimus Prime. He said to me, oh, mate, you're a showbag. I went, why? And he said, oh, you're all shiny on the outside and full of shit. Andrew was a teenager in the 80s when Apple, Sega and Commodore home computers first started appearing in shops. And I came of age in the 80s in the VIC-20 to Commodore 64 phase of computing. Are you keeping up with the Commodore? Because the Commodore is keeping up with you. The Commodore 64, now in a home family. The Commodore 64 was one of the first computers aimed squarely at the home market. It was pitched as the personal computer with professional power. Coming in at around $500 in Australia, it was beige with large chunky brown keys and plugged directly into your telly. It came in a big box with a joystick, a data cassette or floppy disk if you're lucky, and a whopping 64 kilobytes of memory. Later versions came with a mouse. The outer suburbs of Melbourne were a pretty insular place. The closest teenagers like Bag got to a world outside Australia was... I'm Casey Kasem on American Top 40 in Hollywood. The American Casey Kasem on a Sunday night, the American Top 40, and it was just like, oh my God. And you'd sit there, I'd be in my room on my kind of computer listening to, you know, Jody Watley or these artists that never made it here. Andrew started going to friends' houses and playing on their Apple IIc and Osborne computers. It was so enchanting, the little winking green cursor filled with endless possibilities, and you could control it. I think it was an ad in the Melton local paper uh, or flyer of a guy renting VIC-20s and Commodore 64s. And so I rented, I think, a VIC-20 and then I was like, oh, this is great. You know, we weren't a well-to-do family. Mum um, said, oh, look, I'm getting my tax back. I'll buy you a computer. So she bought me a Commodore 64 and um, I had a tape drive. Like many teenage boys, Andrew loved tinkering with these new toys. You know, I started to understand uh, a bit more about my computer that I had, you know, how you could edit these drive sectors and I'll give you a great story about what that means. Strip poker, which was a game on the Commodore 64, but highly pixelated, 1985 graphics. And um, so you had to play every hand to undress. And so I'm a, you know, 15-year-old boy. It's like, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna get to the end of this game and see the naked computer digitized woman and figured out how to go into my disk drive and look at the different file names in it and figure out which is which. And then I moved the file names around so it loaded naked. And so then all of a sudden I didn't have to play and I got my jollies as a 15 year old kid. The modem took this exploration to the next level. With a modem, computers could communicate with each other over the phone line. You could go anywhere in the world. Andrew was going for a particular look, a bedroom set up just like David Lightman, the teenage hacker character played by Matthew Broderick from the seminal 1983 hacking film, War Games. Shall we play a game? I can't ask you that. How about mobile, thermal, nuclear, war? Fine. All right. This movie even entered the hacker lexicon. To wargame was to use a program which would automatically dial up numbers sequentially, looking for a connection to another modem. It could do this all night, and it was called wargame dialing. You know, we came of age in the generation of wargames, and so I wanted to be Matthew Broderick. After getting a modem, often the first place most kids would go was a BBS or bulletin board. These were the online chat rooms of the 80s. And remember, this is before the internet. Australia didn't connect to the global network until 1989. On a BBS, you could chat one-on-one, put up public messages, upload and download software. 
At a time when travel wasn't cheap and when long-distance and international phone calls were timed and pricey, it was a revelation. A doorway to another city, another state, or even another country. And when you dial the number of the bulletin board or the service, once you hear the sound of the other computer, you flick the switch and then they start to kind of connect and talk. And at that stage, you know, the speeds were, I think, you know, the, all the bulletin boards were 300 BPS. Compare that to the 25 megabits per second, which is roughly what we call high-speed internet today. That's 25 million bits per second, or 83,000 times faster than what Andrew was getting. So super slow. Um, then Telecom introduced this dial-up bulletin board service called Viatel, which was basically like dial-up teletext, and it had email. So 85, 86, I'm using email to you know, communicate with people that I've met on Viatel all around Australia. But one of his biggest influences was a local. I'm pretty sure it was City Toy World in Melbourne, which was at the time they were like the biggest Commodore 64 peripheral and software kind of seller. Andrew became friends with the sales guy. I'd go in probably most lunchtimes. It was on Swanson Street down in Melbourne. It was just a, mate, it's the equivalent of an, of an 80s kid's um, candy store. You're in there looking at all these games. And so I started buying them and the, this guy behind the counter um, introduced himself, Chris. Commodore 64s came out and he was the first kid of the shop to get one and um, they just kept multiplying. That's Chris's brother, Pete. No, next thing you come in, there'd be four of them there and then there'd be six of them. (laughs) He'd find some ways to link them all up and games went quicker and all that sort of stuff. He'd be finding the way to do it and he just, he's totally absorbed by the things basically. Chris would become the first hacker in Australia to go to prison. He was known on the bulletin boards and later to the police as Bitmapper. He also used the online handle CC and Captain Credit. Chris was a, he was a cracking human. You get a sense that someone's already further down their journey in computers than you are and you kind of, obviously, they they become a bit of a hero for you. After a while, the games weren't the challenge. After all, they were pretty simple. The real interest became cracking the copyright protection. He said to me, hey, listen... I take all of these games home and I crack them, which means I remove the piracy protection from them, and I copy them. And you can take all my discs and you can copy them. I was like, oh man, that's amazing. They got to know each other pretty well. And Chris came over one weekend. And we were, I think we were maybe in my bedroom, maybe drinking bourbon, mucking around, like playing games. But then... By the Monday morning, I got a mail notification from Microtex that I'd been kicked off um, Microtex 666 bulletin board for um, abusive posts. And then I think I tried to say, hey, listen, I left my room and my friend was on mine. They were like, well, that's your responsibility. It's your computer. You know, it's it's in your name. And so I was like, where there's a will, there's a way. I've got to get back on Microtex 666. I have to be, you know, with my peeps. And with these guys exploring the online world, there's always a workaround. So the light bulb goes on in little Sidwell's head when he's uh, 15, 16 years old. I know I'm going to be a woman. So I went for Roxanne Lepulk. Um, I was like, Roxanne is sexy. And Lepulk is French and foreign. And I smash those two together. I'm going to be Roxanne Lepulk. So I... Um, you know, so started to enjoy the fruits of my hard-earned naming uh, and then started, started like the honeypot 
of uh, Michael's Technics. This was Andrew's first and only run-in with the law. Yeah, so Roxanne Laporte attracted a guy from my hometown, which was pretty odd. And so he started kind of, you know, talking to me. He, he like reached out and then he um, was like, oh, you know, I'm a part-time photographer if you want to do any modelling. Andrew wasn't too careful about keeping up his false identity and soon people on the bulletin board and the guy from his hometown figured it out. And then that guy and I started having a flame war. And so I said to him, hey, mate, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you got a rock through your shop window. And he was, copies of that message have been sent to the police. And I was 15. I went, copies of yours have been sent to your wife. And so the, the cops were just like, who is she? Who is Roxanne Lepore? And they zero, he zeroed in on it. And I was like... It's no one. It's me. It's me. And he said, what will I find if we come and look through your bedroom? I said, nothing. You just find my computer. Thinking in my head, oh, my God, I've got 120 discs full of pirated games and I've got hack phone numbers to bulletin boards that I've got off uh, other people. I'm in deep shit here. And that was it. I was out of computers and, and probably at the most interesting time in computers when they were about to go through the roof. So that was it for Andrew. But his friend from Toy World wasn't done. Meet Chris, known in the world of computer hackers as CC, a self-confessed credit card cheat. On the 25th of June, 1987, Chris was featured on the Willacy program, a popular TV current affairs show. All of Australia watched as Chris demonstrated what he'd been up to. It was called carding, that is, hacking computers to steal credit card numbers. How much would you have ripped off the system for? I don't know, probably over $10,000 at the least. How much over $10,000? Maybe $20,000 over. Chris's face is hidden in shadow. He sounds shy and he has what looks like a fake handlebar moustache. He explains to reporter Debbie Byrne that once he gets a credit card number, he calls a friend in the US to check it, and then demonstrates. Scott, uh, do a credit check. Yeah, hang on a sec. Bank, That's a bank ID number for which bank <laughs> the card comes out of. That's the merchant number, the store number for who's buying. Now this is for the 16-digit card number. Scott from the US tells the reporter that he's currently got about 20 credit cards, but it's not uncommon for people to hack more than 200 cards in one night. To an audience which most likely had never even used a personal computer, it was a revelation. And it was scary. Do you have any proof of what you're saying? Any proof Proof. that it can happen? Yeah. What? I can order something right now and show you exactly how it's done. And this is the proof. $200 worth of roses delivered to the office with the message, it works. Why do you do it? I know, it's fun. Stealing from other people is fun? No, getting through the system is fun. Debbie Byrne reporting. It is a bit of a worry, isn't it? Uh, Incidentally, those roses ended up as a pleasant surprise to some elderly patients at a Melbourne hospital, and we went back to the florist and paid for those flowers so that... uh, The bull won't go anywhere else. More in a moment.
I found out Chris died about 10 years ago. About an hour's drive out of Melbourne, I caught up with his older brother, Pete. How are you going? How are you? Yeah, I just remember telling him not to do it. And so what happened after the TV interview? He got arrested in the car park. <laughs> uh, um, he was promised down in the media and lots of stuff and somebody's organised for them to be there to arrest him after the interview. But then things sort of escalated a bit. <laughs> Andrew, the guy known as Bag, saw Chris not long after. I vaguely remember him telling me this. And he read in the newspaper Chris had been charged. He knew a kid who was on work experience at the police credit union. And he got that kid to find a detective on his case, personal home address or personal details. The police co-op was a credit union, like a small bank, set up for police members. I got a list of every name, address and telephone number of every officer registered with the police co-op system. And then what? I decided to ring the arresting officer up and try and warn him off. (laughs) But uh, an hour after the phone call, there's five squad cars at my parents' place and they um, took Chris into custody and just turned the place upside down. And this is while he's on bail, isn't it? He's on bail, yeah. Um, Yeah, I took him down to Northcote Police Station and um, I think... uh, Every um, badass copper in Melbourne came in to have a few whacks at him, basically. Uh, so, how, how, like, how do you know that was your father with him? Oh, we, 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 we went to the Northcote police station. And we're sitting in the waiting room, and every five, ten minutes, there'd be you know, a new, new couple of uh, police thugs come through the door and say, "Where is he?" <laughs> Simple as that. They'd go and have their crack at them, or you know, the other the two that had just been in there sort of came out. Unsurprisingly, the police were pretty dirty about Chris getting access to their personal details. I can see their point, yeah, but... <laughs> you know, but uh, on the other hand, it's a 17-year-old kid. My name's Steve Wilson. I'm an ex-detective inspector. A couple of days before this episode was released, I heard back from a police inspector who worked on Chris's case. I'd been trying to track him down for months. At the time of this uh, fraud matter, I was a detective senior constable at the Victoria Police Fraud Squad. So I quickly arranged to meet him the next day on the banks of the Yarra River in the heart of Melbourne. So tell me how you first came to hear about Chris McDonald. Well, how we came about with Chris MacDonald is he, he had appeared on a current affair program back the uh, the Willisie show. Under anonymity, he um, showed how he could hack foreign credit cards and make purchases on other people's credit cards. So you found out about it because you were tipped off by the TV show? Yes, that's correct. Yep, yep. They came to us with, uh, with this information that they had interviewed Chris and that they'd actually um, seen him hack into credit cards and produce flowers for one of their producers is what he did. Talk about burning a source. But when you think about it, Channel 9 had just asked Chris to hack credit cards for the camera. And when he did, the Willisie program must have realised they were then potentially guilty of facilitating the commission of a crime. 
So, despite offering Chris anonymity, which they did on camera with the fake moustache and dimmed lighting, they went to the police. Um, And so they, they then came to us with that information. And another one of Pete's recollections checks out too. I was told that he was arrested in the Channel 9 car park. I don't honestly... Um, actually, when I think back, yes, I think we did arrest him in the, in the, the car park. Yeah, we were, we were waiting for him when he arrived. This sort of crime was new to the Victorian police. They had just started using computers themselves in the office, but no-one really knew much about them. Yes, yep, it was the first one in my time and, uh, as it turned out, the first one in Victoria and I believe the first one in Australia where this um, phenomenon suddenly appeared where um, people were receiving credit card bills for things they'd never purchased and could never work out initially and particularly people in the US um, were making or appearing to make purchases in in Australia and, and Melbourne in particular. And because Chris was contacting hackers in Baltimore, the US Secret Service got involved. Yes, that's right. Because of the the international connections and the number of individual states that were involved in the US, and this one fell into the domain of the of the US Secret Service. So we were dealing with the uh, the US Secret Service in Washington. According to Stephen, Chris accessed the credit card numbers which were posted online. Yes, it was a bulletin board where these details were put up. Yep. As the lead investigator, Stephen was one of the people Chris targeted when he got the list of officers from the police credit co-op. They decided that they would send us some flowers with a message that, almost a challenge, that you can't catch us. Do you remember the flowers? Yeah, there were roses, red roses. What did you think when you saw a bunch of red roses on your desk? (laughs) They were annoyed at the start and then we had a laugh. But then it got more serious and more personal. Basically, the credit card details, home addresses and telephone numbers of myself and two other members of the fraud squad were put up on a bulletin board with a message of, here's the details, um, go for your life, boys. Stephen showed me a printout of the information posted on the bulletin board and sure enough, names, addresses and home phone numbers were there. As it turned out, and thankfully for me, they got my telephone number wrong, but the other two members of the fraud squad received phone calls at three o'clock in the morning. Whilst it wasn't Chris, Chris was there when the phone calls were made, as he told me later on. Basically, the, the, the same threat, but with a bit more venom about what they were going to do. They were going to come to our houses and what they were going to do to people at our houses and, uh, and things like that. So it took a bit of a more serious turn than, uh, than just sending us flowers from our perspective. That's when Chris was arrested again and charged with harassing offences, squad cars pulling up at Chris's parents' house. I also wanted to put to Stephen the allegation that Chris was beaten up in the police cells. Arrested while he was on bail and then roughed up in a police station. Yeah, I um, I know that's been mentioned. I wasn't there. There was a conscious decision made within our squad that we would not arrest him. Once he was in custody, we would then go and interview, which which is what we did. So I can't comment on what happened when he was arrested, and and he didn't say. There's no way of us verifying what happened in that Northcote police cell. But 35 years on, Pete's memory is pretty solid. He remembers sitting in that waiting room with his father. He just... He just waited it out. What else can you do? You're not going to stop him. (laughs) And the next morning... We got him bailed out the next day. And what did he look like? Pretty ugly. <laughs> yeah, he'd had a hell of a hiding. Hmm. 
Chris pleaded guilty to 20 charges of obtaining property by deception and three charges of using a telephone service to harass police officers. On the 29th of February 1988, the Melbourne Magistrates Court heard Chris bought $18,705 worth of goods using stolen credit cards. Newspaper articles from the time reported that he got these numbers from the US and Norway. This was before there were any laws dealing with computer hacking, so technically he was charged with stealing. And what does a teenage boy spend that kind of money on in the 80s? If he wasn't buying computers, he'd be, you know, they'd be spending on girls, you know, sort of bunches of flowers, you know, limousine, picking them up to go out. And concert tickets. Oh, yeah, concert tickets. <laughs> They're Bon Jovi tickets, yeah. Um, I think there's a, there's a fair few of them, but the, the Bon Jovi ones were the ones that I sort of um, ended up with. I think there was a hundred of them, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't two or three tickets, it was, it was like a hundred tickets. And you sold them? I sold a few of them to help fund the defence. There were about 300 concert tickets in all to Bon Jovi, Billy Idol and Simply Red. I checked this out and realised I was at Billy Idol's only Melbourne concert on the 27th of August 1987 at Festival Hall, a sweatbox of 5,000 heaving fans. I remember standing in front of guitarist Steve Stevens, his tight leather pants and massive hair. Who knew? I could have been in the mosh pit slamming into Bitmapper, aka Chris. But unlike me, Chris probably wasn't picked up by his tired-looking father wearing a dressing gown and pyjamas. He most likely got a ride home in a chauffeured limo. That's because Chris was later ordered by the court to repay presidential limousines $1,200 and $600 to budget chauffeur drive. He also had to pay $4,500 back to Bass, the ticketing agency. Chris was sentenced in the Melbourne Magistrates Court on the 19th of February, 1988. Magistrate Rowan McKindo told the court... The operation had been sophisticated, if not precocious or arrogant. The sophistication, the deliberateness of them, should be met with a term of imprisonment right now. On the charge of obtaining a computer by deception, he was sentenced to 12 months with nine months suspended. And on another 19 charges of attempting to obtain property by deception, he received one month. And there was a fine of $600 for using a telephone service to harass police officers. Chris served three months. He was the first hacker in Australia to go to jail. Chris's family found out what their son had been up to when a massive phone bill came in the mail. They used to be on the phone all night, basically, modems hooked up to America all night. And um, the way they sort of uh, paid for it was, or didn't pay for it, was um, to go into a telecoms computer and redirect the phone bill somewhere else. <laughs> and um, over the morning, they'd flick it back to the, the, you know, my parents' phone bill. But, um, that, that went awry at some stage, and I think my mum got a $10,000 phone bill for, for, for one month. But mum wouldn't have, yeah, my mum wouldn't have told my father. <laughs> Chris would have got a bit of hiding, bigger hiding than probably the coppers gave him. <laughs> so she was trying to cover for him? Mm, she was, yes. She did that for most of her life. <laughs> Kirk was another guy around Melbourne at this time who also looked up to Chris for his computer skills. His mind was really set on the fun of just cracking into stuff. By far, he knew the most out of anybody that I'd met. I knew a few people on the bulletin boards and chat rooms and things like that, but, you know, once you're in the presence of Chris, 
you can just see that he was streets ahead of us. He's um, just a live wire, basically, I guess you'd say, as a kid, you know, he sort of um, made friends very easily. You know, he just switched on and bright. And uh, my sister often speaks about, you know, they'd go out and, you know, they'd be out shopping somewhere and he'd just say, I've got to go over and say good day to my friends. And she said, you don't know them. He said, oh, I will. <laughs> There was no malice in anything that he ever did. He was just out there to have a good time, just like any other teenager, just pushing the envelope and, and challenging himself. I really think there should be some credit for people like himself, especially Chris, because without him, I don't think we would have put in all the measures for credit card safety and, and you know email safety and all that kind of stuff, because he really pushed the envelope and made people realise that even little kids, you know, teenagers, can be doing all of this stuff. So it was a big wake-up call for the whole world of what was to come, and you know, a little bit of credit should go to him, I think. We also know this case was being closely watched by the emerging Melbourne hacker community, and they were about to get into a lot more than just ripping off credit cards. We'll hear more from them in later episodes. Another person now infamous in Australia for hacking is Steve Stevens. We heard from Skeev earlier about his hack into Monash Uni. Skeev remembers the early days of hacking being an adventure, the challenge to be the best, not so much about breaking the law. I don't think that I really even knew anyone who tried to break the law. So most of the, the hacking that I came across was people trying to figure out what could be accomplished um, and were they better than the others. One of Skeev's hacks was Coke machines. A Coca-Cola, I'm guessing, or some provider of vending machines, had put little Unix boxes into the bottom of their Coke machines. This keeps track of how many cans are in the machine. And it would send a, a message out over the networks that it needed more Coke to be refilled. We ended up gaining access, I think it, was, it might have been 2,000 machines, and we, we could actually spit out cans of Coke. <laughs> Skeev then entered a fake value as a prompt but he needed proof his hack was working. We knew people all around, or all over the world, and one of the unis, I got one of the guys, and I'm like, oh, which uni are you at? And he goes, oh, blah, I said. Skeev replied, great, I have a Coke machine there. Can you go down this Coke machine? And he's like, okay, do it in like 30 seconds. And he's like, run over, and I'd be like... And he'd come back and he'd go, I just got Coke, I just got Coke! <laughs> Skeev's luck ran out, and he was arrested in 1995 for a different scam. Using the name Optic Surfer, Stevens hacked into computers run by the internet service provider Osnet. In a bid, he says, to expose lax security. He got into Osnet while their link between Melbourne and Sydney was down. And so I actually accessed their systems. I went in there um, and saw where all the credit card numbers were. Took a dump of them, there was 2,000. And the file was like credit card expiration date. Name, date of birth, home address, driver's license number. Like, it was the, it was the payload of identity theft. Skeev claimed he didn't use the cards to steal. He just wanted to show the world how easy it was to access them and how slack the bank's security was. So, in April 1995, he emailed lists of credit card numbers to 20 journalists. I thought, the only way I could do this is if I disseminated the information widely enough that, from a media perspective, that the banks would be forced to... Because the banks, in the, in, ultimately, 
um, claimed that I cost them $400,000 in damages by having to, them to reissue cards. What I've done, essentially, in, in a parable was, you look through a neighbor's window, you saw him watching child porn. So what you did was you broke in, grabbed the tape, and you took it down to the police, and they went, thank you very much, and arrested you for breaking into. But the court found Skeeve's motivation was to harm the company, Osnet, which handled the credit card data, because they'd rejected his job application. Skeeve was sentenced to three years jail, 18 months non-parole. He's often referred to as the first hacker to go to prison in Australia. Yes, Chris McDonald went to jail 10 years earlier for his hacking activities, but that was before there were any computer hacking laws. Remember, Chris was charged with obtaining property by deception. For Skeeve, jail wasn't all bad. Osnet might have knocked him back for a job, but other folks were now after his talents. I had five job interviews in total while I was in prison. Three of them with law enforcement. Skeeve's now a consultant and futurist. A few years ago, he invested in a company which specialises in microchip implants in humans. Next time on Motherload... Someone broke into the NASA SPAN network and when you logged in, it would come up with a, a message or a printed message on the console that labelled in large letters that it was the wank worm, it was worms against nuclear killers. Why Melbourne? Still not known. A subset of the Melbourne hacker community was interested in NASA at that time. Not a clue. Had no clue what that meant. Learned it later, but uh, at the time, nobody, nobody in NASA had a clue what that meant. When we went to the States, we, we got this question everywhere we went about Wankworm. Motherload is written and researched by me, Greg Muller. Executive producer, Lucy Kent. Mixing and sound design by Martin Peralta. Consulting producer, Siobhan McHugh. Motherload is an original Ranieri & Co production. Be sure to leave a review where you can. Thanks for listening. <laughs>